Anyway, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Um, as the preaching team has finished our study through the book of Hebrews and anticipating where we would go next, um, I'm excited about starting a new series of messages uh, from our perspective uh, in the book of Isaiah. Particularly during this time of year, uh, and Lord willing, some of our Christian growth group are going to head over to downtown for a presentation of Handel's Messiah by the Winston-Salem Symphony. And much of the scripture that makes up the text of Handel's Messiah comes from the book of Isaiah. And uh, that's one of our favorite Christmas season traditions is to pull out the CDs and start listening to the Messiah during this season and then it goes on into next year and then sometimes during the year we'll say, hey, let's pull that back out and listen to a little bit. But if you're not familiar with Handel's Messiah, I would encourage you greatly. Uh, not only is it a beautiful piece of music that was composed, but the lyrics don't get much better than scripture. Uh, and when the script and the, when the lyrics are focused upon our Savior, that's why we're here. We want to make much of him and uh, that is certainly a, a piece of music and a, and a work that does just that. But with it coming from the book of Isaiah, I'm excited and I trust that the other members of the preaching team are excited. And I hope you as a church and those of you who will be listening to these messages will be excited about the content that is found in the 66 chapters of Isaiah. It is by far outside of the book of Psalms, which is composed of 150 songs. The book of Isaiah is the, the largest piece of Old Testament work, uh, most of it uh, being prophetic. There are small portions of it that are historical as it relates to the prophecy, uh, many of which have dual prophecies in which they were going to be fulfilled both in the day or near the day in which it was given, but much of it yet to come. That which was yet to come, much of it was fulfilled in the coming of Christ the first time. The rest of which we all as the body of Christ and the, and the family of God await with anticipation. The future fulfillment of the words which were given to this prophet Isaiah. And while there are many interesting points about the book that we could mention as means of an introduction, I will forego that as we will jump right in to Isaiah chapter 1. This season we uh, spend much of our time, or, or at least we may recall as a younger person spending much of our time preparing lists of things that we wanted. Uh, we had particular individuals that we anticipated would fulfill our wishes and our, and our desires. And so even to the point of writing a list and maybe even putting it in a mailbox somewhere so that someone would receive this list of things that we wanted. Hopefully as we have grown older uh, and as we continue to grow older, uh, maybe our list change from things that we want to maybe we start considering things that we need. And uh, as you become parents, I'm sure you probably recognize that there is a transition of where you uh, begin to spend less time focusing on what your children need or what they want and focus more on what they need and, and maybe sort of mix the two. Or perhaps maybe even grew up in a generation uh, that things were tough 
uh, things were wanting and so the things you wanted just happened to be the things that you needed uh, so that when you hear or share stories of those when Christmas season came around and uh, you got a bag of fruit or a package of walnuts or something similar to that 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 was not just a <laughs> just a, a whimsical thing but that was actually something you appreciated getting because that was that was a treat uh, as a young person I remember every every winter when we would have our Christmas musical program uh, at the end of the program uh, the deacons would be around the churches and they would give you a brown paper bag full of fruit and walnuts and a box of raisins I don't know who thought of those box of raisins, but I guess that was just you know a cheap packaged item before Sam's came along. But that was a treat. Things that you know, it was sort of mixing the things that you wanted, things that you needed. When we think of the scriptures, and we look particularly at the nation of Israel, it is as, as it is presented to us as God's people. We often see them desiring things and petitioning God for things that they wanted. Remember, they wanted to be free. Slavery got to be a, an old hat to them, and so they wanted a new lease on life, and so they, they wanted to be free from the slavery of Pharaoh, and God granted it to them, and then they began to grumble. It wasn't long, even after they had possession of their own land, that they began to look around and say, we want a king. Like everybody else. We, we, we don't need the laws. We don't need these judges. We, don't, we, we want a king like everyone else, and God gave them one. The first one taught them a lesson as to what they should be looking for. The second, David, was one in which they could find great fulfillment in God's promises and blessing. But it wasn't long after the death of David, and even through some of the issues that David brought among his own kingdom. Uh, that there was a bad taste as far as what they wanted. And so, worshiping the gods of other nations became their practice. And it became a transition point to where God then began to tell them what they needed and what he was going to provide for them. And that's where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah generally speaking, includes a message of judgment and salvation. All in relation to God's servant. That would be the Messiah. It's directed not only to Israel itself, but the prophecies that were given to Isaiah also pertain to those of us who are Gentile, those of us who are of the non-Jewish nations of the world. Isaiah his name itself means the Lord shall save. And Isaiah uses that title for God, the Lord, Jehovah, over 300 times in these 66 chapters. So it's clear to see that by means of understanding who Isaiah is by name and the, the amount of usage of the name of the Lord and the message of salvation and judgment of what the theme of his book is. So as we read verse 1 together, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
Now these four kings obviously didn't reign at the same time, but this verse is telling us that what we have in the following chapters that Isaiah records, he received it during the history of these four kings. These four kings reigned in Judah, Judah being that representation of the two southern tribes of the twelve of Israel. The ten northern tribes that we know and recognize as Israel, in a biblical sense in the Old Testament, have been judged in Isaiah's life. They have been taken away into captivity. And so Isaiah comes along as one of the first major prophets uh, after the reign of David and Solomon. And much of his message is about warning. To remember what has happened to the northern tribes. And consider that that will be your future should you remain in your sin. The remainder of chapter 1 is a vision in and of itself. The German theologian Ewald calls this chapter the great arraignment. It's a courtroom exercise. Chapter 1 shows us and displays for us a courtroom scene, much like you may recall from your favorite television uh, prosecutor or defendant who never lost and always had the right things to say at the right time and always found the right information to give just so that he could make sure that justice was served. Well, thankfully, God is not relying upon anyone else's wisdom or just mere chance. But God is the supreme justice of his universe that he has created is providing us a courtroom in which his people are on trial. You may have recalled that those who, uh, in an evangelistic sense, have asked you, uh, if, if you were to be put on trial as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove that and to condemn you to, as being a Christian? Well, the opposite is true here. God is presenting a case to show how his people are in need of justice, of restoration. And he's going to show them that he is right and that their life needs to be adjusted or else. And as a manager in the, in the workplace that I'm in, having people report to me, I have, over the years, had to develop a sense of, of case building. Uh, if I'm going to discipline, I know that's a harsh word, but uh, that's, that's, that's what it is. When you don't do what you're supposed to do and there's correction for that, we call that discipline. That's a way of teaching. That's a way of training people. And when it's up to me to bring forth discipline into the life of one of the agents that report to me, I have to build a case. I can't just simply say, you've got to do better or I don't like what you're doing, you need to change, or else. I can't threaten somebody with their job. I can't even make them change their behavior just simply because I want them to. I have to have some reason to it. I have to disclose to them what the expectations were when they took the job. I have to demonstrate to them how their performance is not meeting those expectations. I have to present before them some consequences if they fail to improve or meet those expectations. And ultimately, if all of those steps have absolutely none effect in their life, I have to bring termination to their employment. 
I recently had to do this, and we have a wonderful legal department to make sure I do everything properly. I have a great HR department who's making sure I do everything fairly. I have supervisors and managers of my own to make sure that everything I'm doing is done in a timely fashion, to make sure that everything is done properly, or else all of this, regardless of how poorly they're performing, I cannot terminate their employment. Now, termination is not my goal. As a matter of fact, as a manager where I work, it brings great joy to me when people simply just do what they're supposed to do. It great, brings even greater joy to me when I don't have to push them to even go above and beyond to do their job well. Not just for me because it makes my job easier, but because it makes the place in which I work a better place to work and it makes me feel better about the customers that which ultimately my company serves. It makes me feel proud to be able to say I work for a place if I know that my employees are doing what they're supposed to do and do it well, right? That makes sense. However, if there's a, if there's a, a weak link in the chain or if there's some dry places in the cog that needs greasing and we just can't fix it, then the best thing that we can do for not only that person who seems to be very miserable doing the job that they're doing, and for the company which they work for, is to let them find employment somewhere else. But we do everything that we can at all costs, in some cases, to make sure we never get to that point. But sometimes that's it because, let's face it, that is the reality for some people that work for the company I work for. It's just it. I take no pleasure in that. But at the same time, I have a greater goal for things to work as they ought to. Now, in a much greater sense... In an infinitely greater sense. God who has created all that we know and everyone who's in it and everything that we do and the purpose for which we do it has a much greater motivation to see His creation, to exalt Him, to make much of Him, to enjoy Him. And when that is not taking place as a loving God, looking at his creation, not fulfilling their role for which they were created, and to see himself as the supreme being who is deserving of all, all worship and praise. A loving God is going to intervene. He's going to provide warning. He is going to encourage correction. And ultimately, he will make things right, one way or the other. So when we come to Isaiah in this courtroom with this great arraignment taking place, Isaiah in the following verses provides four pieces of evidence substantiating the charges against them as testimony to their despair. We begin in verse 2 where he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. All oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. The first piece of evidence that God brings forth before his people in this courtroom says, you have an estranged relationship. 
Now, I grew up on a farm. Pastor Charlie even made an allusion to that last week. <laughs> Apparently, he thought I worked on the farm. I just grew up on a farm. <laughs> My dad will be the first one to testify. I didn't do a whole lot of work, but he wasn't there and didn't know the difference. I really did work, but not too hard. No, long, no more than I had to, right? But I know the difference between the animals on the farm of which I remember my grandfather having cows and pigs and chickens and everything, the animals had a certain understanding. Now, most of it came from pain, and they wanted to avoid the pain, so they listened when you told them to do something in a very simple way. But what God is saying, I have reared children. But the animals out in the barn have a better understanding of who they are and what their purpose is than my children do. Now, parents, let me ask you a very simple question. Do your children understand what you want from them? Now, you would like to say, well, I've told them. I've communicated it to them. But if it really comes down to understanding, it's going to all play out in their life, isn't it? If they truly understand what the conscience of which God has given them to be able to discern between right and wrong, and as you continue to teach them to do this and not to do that, you will understand quickly whether or not they understand what they are supposed to be doing. The children of Israel reflects human nature in, in, as, as a whole. God says, I have reared them. I brought them up. But they have rebelled. And perhaps maybe as a parent, you can look back and say, I can relate to that. I tried hard I taught what I thought was best. I tried to guide them in the way in which they should go. And they broke my heart. They have gone astray. And I have people that I work with. People in my family. People that I'm familiar with in many different areas of life who share that testimony but none greater than God. God brought his people from one man, Abraham, and, and, and created a, a, a nation that was impossible apart from his work. Kept them from being eliminated in, in so many different ways, whether it be through famine or whether it be through slavery or different, different things, brought them out of captivity. Gave them a, a, a beautiful, prosperous, fruitful land to live within. Gave them good kings to live under. But yet they rebelled. The word estranged comes from two words in the Hebrew. To become a stranger along with the word that means the hind part. So in other words, the King James Version translates it really well by saying they have gone away backward. They didn't just rebel. They, they went around backwards. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised or they have provoked the Holy One of Israel as they have rebelled in relation to His upbringing. It was as if the bad babysitter took control. The parents did everything they could to rear them and they thought that when they went out of town for a weekend and brought the babysitter in who they could trust, come in to take care of the children, that they completely turned things upside down. 
Or maybe it's that, well, I would use the example of grandparents spoiling the children, grandchildren, but I won't go there because that would be way too sensitive. But we understand that there can be influences around those who you rear and bring up the right way that can cause them to rebel and go around backward. Not an excuse. That's just a reason. And God's people had an estranged relationship with the one who not only had brought them into creation, but the one who redeemed them, gave them a purpose, gave them a promise of blessing. But that's not only a piece of evidence. Another piece of evidence, verse 5, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. In other words, they were a battered body. They were beaten up. What were they beaten up from? From the consequences of their sin. God told them, if you disobey me, you will suffer. There are curses that come along with rejecting me. There are consequences to trusting the wrong friendship. And Israel was battered. And God was saying, why, why are you continually struck down? When will you learn? Why do you keep getting into the fight? Why do you keep rebelling against me? Your whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. It's kind of like a stubborn man who never wants to go to the doctor. Why do, you, why do you stay sick? Why will you not change your behavior? Why do you keep pursuing this same goal? Why do you keep consuming the same substance? Why do you keep engaging in that same behavior? Your body is sick, it needs to heal. You need to press out those wounds. You need to get treated. You need to be softened with oil. But Israel, like many of us in our sin, in the way our hearts continue to deceive us, we are ashamed. We seek to be alone. We live in denial. Thinking that somehow in our pitiful state we can protect ourselves and hopefully things will get better if we just stay away. That's the reason why Christ, in a wonderful gift, gave us the body of Christ, the church. Because we are battered and we are scarred from our sin. We are weary, we are faint because of our own mistakes. We need one another for healing. We need one another to encourage us to not keep going that same direction. We need people to tell us we're going the wrong direction. But like Israel, we remain struck down. We don't change. We don't move. There's no repentance. A third argument he gives is the desolate city. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate. It's overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. There are some interesting phrases here that we might not quite pick up on or understand quickly. For example, you may not be familiar with a booth in a vineyard or a lodge in a cucumber field. That wasn't on my farm. But there were days past in which you would have such a large farm that within that field, because it was valuable, you live in an agrarian society where, where, where food was, was raised by your neighbors and yourself, when it came time to, or before it came time to reap the harvest, you needed to have someone protecting it. These booths and these lodges are basically just boxes out in the field where somebody could lodge and make sure and keep watch over making sure someone didn't come into your garden, come into your field, and steal things. However, when growing season and harvest season was over and before you planted again, those people who were paid to stay out there in the building, that's where they were at. Alone. There was nobody out there planting the next day. There was nobody out harvesting the following week. But nonetheless, to make sure that somebody else didn't come and steal that property from them, they had to remain. But they were isolated alone. And in a similar way, this is the way God describes his people Israel. Look around you. The stronger nations are coming in and they're devouring everybody that lives near you and you're left alone. Why do you remain that way? Do you not feel lonely? There's no gatherers, but the tenant in the booth had to remain there nonetheless. But while the enemy was destroying all the neighboring cities, Jerusalem was spared but isolated. They were all but eliminated. If God had not left just a few people there in those two southern tribes, they would be just as evacuated as Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were all gone. Uh, you don't get too much emptier than Sodom and Gomorrah. There wasn't anything left. And if it wasn't but for the grace of God and His mercy, that's the way Jerusalem would have been. Because everybody else had been carted off. Everybody else was now serving another nation. And they were left alone. The fourth argument is they were like a desolate city. I'm sorry, they were vain worship. Verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What difference does it make, Israel, if you come to the temple every day with another animal, another sacrifice? What is it to me that you get up some fresh incense and you start burning it? What is it to me 
that you create even more holidays, more celebrations, write new songs, read more prayers. What is that to me? I am overly burdened with this. I am sick and I hate it. Why? What was missing? Their heart. They were still in their sin. It makes no difference how many services we plan here at Cornerstone. If you're going to live in sin every day of the week and, and pursue it, it doesn't matter how long our worship service, or by that matter, how short the service is. If we come in here with an impure heart and wrong motivation, it doesn't matter how we word our prayers or order our worship service. It doesn't matter which songs we sing if in our hearts and in our minds we have contempt for the Lord and His Word. It makes absolutely no difference how much money we give to Lottie Moon or any other offering plate that passes by that if in our hearts we are resentful of the fact that I'm not able to get what I want because I'm giving something in the plate. Now I realize I'm speaking to some individuals who under some very different circumstances have made your way to a worship service today. Whether because of the difficulty of the roads or maybe you had some concerns. Uh, but you're here. But don't be fooled into thinking that God is going to be impressed with that if your heart is yearning after something else while you're here. No more than somebody who is not here because they would rather just watch Charles Stanley on TV this morning as opposed to venture out on the clean and dry roads. You see, God's not impressed with worship in and of itself. Jesus even said himself in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a net and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. All the jagged words of our Savior. This meek and humble teacher that many believed that he was, was very straightforward in saying, your worship apart from justice, mercy, and faithfulness is hypocrisy. God's not interested in practice infected with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And thus he wraps up his four arguments in this great arraignment. After making the case that they need to change, the Lord asks them to uh, reason. Follow, if you will, in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. 
Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That phrase in verse 18, Come now, let us reason together. Much of my life, and in many cases since I first heard this statement, this verse has been used to, to make God seem like, you know what, well, let's just come and talk about it. So let's kind of talk it over. Let's, let's reason. I mean, I gave you a conscience. Let's sort of talk about how life is. And that really misses the point, if that's your understanding of come, let us reason together. This word reason, like a few others in this chapter, are strictly judicial terms. In which what he is literally saying, come and let us argue. Let's come and let us prove something to be the point. And whenever God invites you to come and reason or argue or prove the point with him, guess who's going to be right? It's not going to be, well, let's talk this over and let's see if you have some good ideas and let's see if I have some good ideas and, and maybe we can come and compromise or maybe we can be political about all this and, and let's come to some sort of happy medium or, or let's give some, take some. No. When God says, come, let us reason, He says, come and let us reason why you're wrong. Come and let us understand why I'm right. Come and let us understand what the point of all of this is and how you need to change accordingly. And you might be saying, preacher, that sounds kind of harsh. That doesn't sound like a loving message around Christmas time. It's the most loving thing I can tell somebody who's wrong. Now, I have to be very careful in the way I present it. I have to be very understanding about where it is we're coming from. But if my message changes simply because I want to be nice... Then I might as well just say, you know what, God just simply wants us to kind of pull up, uh, let's just pull up to the bar here, let's kind of have a few drinks, and let's talk this thing over, and let's see if we can come to some agreement about how life should be. And God doesn't do that whatsoever. So when Isaiah prophesies to his people, that which the Lord has spoken, come let us reason, there is a very particular reason why. Here, Barnes, the theologian, says, reason denotes a kind of contention or argumentation which occurs in a court of justice where the parties reciprocally state the grounds of their cause. But this is an argument Israel must lose, for their sin is obvious. But you may also notice that in that passage that we read, it's not all that he says. For God invites them, if you will, to, to make a plea. Plea bargain. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. He doesn't say, now you go back and you change all that behavior that you've already done. He doesn't say, Things can be better, but you're still going to have to hold on to all that guilt and shame that you had from the past. What does he say? He just simply says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. 
Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Stop doing it. Don't. Christ takes care of the past and the future. But he says, don't worry about Repent. Just clean yourselves up. Now we have to understand that God is speaking to his people who are already his people. He's not saying, you're going to become my people by cleaning yourselves up. Let's not make that mistake. But as God's people, when we have rebelled around the backside, He says, Come, make yourselves clean. Confess your sin. Because if you confess your sin, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as that fluffy snow that was falling out Friday night. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be come like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the, the, the good of the land. There is blessing. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. What does that mean? That means that every word of God will pronounce judgment on your everlasting soul. You have a choice. You have a choice. It's an opportunity for them to not be dealt with according to their transgressions, but rather entreats them partake of his mercy. Consider the passage that just a few weeks ago when we were studying the book of Hebrews from chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Sounds a little bit the way he described Israel, doesn't it? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, it hasn't brought you to the point of death. And, you have, for, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed to be best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but latter it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
God gives us an opportunity to be restored through his discipline, through his loving, fatherly discipline. Our last point, the promise of coming judgment. How the faithful city, verse 21, has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the followers, and the widow's cause does not come to them. He reviews, in essence, what their particular sin at this point was. What was that? We see when a man died, if there was no one else, what was his went to his widow and to his children. And what was taking place in Isaiah's day was when that took place, the leaders would not readily recognize the ownership of the woman who had just lost her husband or recognize the rightful heirship of the children. But rather, they would allow outsiders to come in and buy it off. That would be like the 50-acre property that my father lives on and if he has, I hope he has, uh, put my name on a piece of paper saying that one day when he is no longer on this earth and I'm still here, that some of that I may have put in my, my land. And since I don't live in Guilford County, I go over that dreadful day, sometime after my father and my mother's passing, to claim what I believe to be mine, only to find out that the Guilford County commissioners have decided to sell that property to a large corporation who's going to build their plan on it and it's no longer mine. Now you say, well Mark, that's a little bit different because we live in a country where you're not dependent upon your family's uh, property and treasures and all that kind of stuff to be passed down to you for your livelihood. And that's true. It's a different culture. But you understand the principle. That wouldn't be right. And while they're or many situations of injustice taking place in our land. This situation is much different than many of the cases you hear in the world today. This is one where the orphan and the widow are being abused. That's the reason why in, in James' day, some five or six hundred years later, still writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit in James chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to do what? Visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Interesting how that's still an issue. And while we may not live in a culture where we see this prominently, it is something that we should not ignore nor any sort of injustice for that matter. But this is one that is commonly used throughout the Old Testament as well as the New about making sure those who, from a societal perspective, are dependent upon somebody else are not taken advantage of when that person who is taking care of them is no longer there. Unfortunately today, we spend a lot of our time taking care of people who have people there to take care of them. They're just not doing their job. 
And we need to be spending some time preaching and teaching the word of God to those people to make sure they're responsible, while at the same time helping those who are helpless. But lest I digress, let's move on. In spite of this situation that's going on, therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, oh, I will get, from, get relief from mine enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy and restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Is your mind blown away right now reading that? But, but God, these are the guilty people. God, these are the people you're warning. This is the city that is desolate. These are the people who have abandoned you. And what are you going to do? God says, I will get relief. I will turn my hand. I will restore. And who's the recipient of what God will do? His people. His undeserving, ungrateful, idolatrous, wicked, self-serving people. Of whom I graciously am a part. It's not going to be because of, it's like the old Mercy, not the Mercy Me song, but the Cast and Crown song. It's not because of who I am, but it's because of what he's done. And it will have nothing to do with what I've done, but simply because of who he is. There's a sure sentence what the Lord will do for his people. You have it there on your outline. We won't spend much time on it because of our time's gone. But he's going to get relief through vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That is one of the hardest things to live by faith, knowing that God is going to take care of the bad people. I want them to suffer right now. I want them to be, get caught right now. Where's, that, where's the police officer when they're speeding? What, what, you know, what's happening when they do something wrong? Nobody's there to see them. Guess what? God says he will be, get relief through his vengeance. God says, I will turn my hand through fire. He is going to use fire to bring back all the impurities that are in me and wipe them off. He is going to restore through righteousness. And where is that righteousness going to come through? Through my repentance. And thanks be to God, he grants me repentance. Thanks be to God, he gives me faith. Thanks be to God, he has redeemed my life. Zion shall be redeemed through justice. The city of Jerusalem, God's people, they're going to be seen as righteous because they're going to be doing what's right. Because one day, Jesus Christ is going to come back. He is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem and he will rule with a rod of iron. He will reign perfectly. Justice will be served. Righteousness will be practiced. Sorry, I'm a little excited about the book of Isaiah. Because you're going to hear a lot more of this. However, in closing, there's going to be pronounced a sure sentence for those who rebel. Verse 28 says they're going to be fractured. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be broken. 
Verse 28 also says they're going to come to an end. They're going to be consumed. Verse 29 says when the day comes, they're going to be ashamed to have remained isolated from God in their sin. They're going to be disappointed. And then verses 31, 30 and 31 describe how they're going to fall away. <laughs> the strong. There's a lot of people in this world who, apart from God, think they're strong. Either through their mind power, through their intelligence, through their physique, through their authority, their money, their wealth. The strong's going to become tender. And his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. No relief. So what do we do with this today? If you're a child of God, I would encourage you, as the writer of Hebrews, to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When things are getting tough, when you're tempted to fall away from God, when you're tempted to rely upon yourself, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners on a cross for you and for me. I would say, like the writer of Hebrews, to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Rise up from your misery. Repent of your sin. Forsake that which is wrong. Make yourself whole by obeying the Word of God. And I would say strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Are you pursuing peace with everyone and a holiness that can only be found? The Lord's not nearby if you're not. But if, if, if the Lord will be seen in your life and through your life, you need to be striving for peace. And for the holiness of God. And if you're here today and you're apart from God, please hear the sure word of God. <laughs> it was over 2,500 years ago, but, but the Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken. May he give us ears to hear.